Uh, let's stand together. We're going to pray and dismiss the kids for class. Father, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask that he would instruct our minds, uh, enlighten our eyes, Lord. Um, move us uh, not just to know, but to, to do, to act, to live. We pray that your word would uh, bear fruit in our lives today. We pray the same for the kids. We ask that uh, the word they hear, Lord, would, would really uh, cause them to come to know you and love you and serve you. We ask this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. As they're stepping out, turn in your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 11. How many of you got to hear, uh, hear Rob's sermon last week? It was really good. I think more of you were here responded. But anyway, uh, it, was, it was very good. And if you didn't hear it, uh, what I'm sharing today is kind of a follow-up. So I would encourage you to get the podcast. You can find the, the podcast on our website. Listen to Rob's message. Um, he shared many good things. One of, one of the, I think, I think the, main, the main theme he wanted us to hear is he wanted us to, he wanted us to really understand the heart of the Father, the heart of God, the heart of the Father, particularly the heart of the Father regarding the lost. Um, and I think he did a great job doing that. Amen? Um, so that led me to meditate this week on the heart of not only the Father, but the heart of the Son. And it led me to this, this text in Matthew that I wanted to share with you today. In Matthew chapter 11, it says, in verse 25, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seems good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, your virgin may say meek, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's uh, three things I want to look at today. First, the invitation, which is to come to me. And then secondly, the revelation, that is the revelation and description of Jesus' heart, what his heart is like, which will be my main focus. And then thirdly, an application for us. First of all, the, the invitation. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Uh, the invitation, first of all, is a general invitation. Jesus said, come to me all. Now, all are laboring, whether they know it or not. <laughs> of course, those who come are those who acknowledge that they are heavy laden. They, they acknowledge their need, but all need Jesus Christ, and he extends the invitation to all, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus does not say, come if you're white, or come if you're black, come if you're rich, come if you're poor, come if you're a Jew, or come if you're a Gentile. He extends it to all men and women and children, whatever race, 
whatever color, whatever economic status, because that's how wide his heart is. Amen? He extends it to all. And of course, as he, as he said in John 3, he, for God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The invitation to come is a general invitation. Secondly, it's a gracious invitation. Notice he says in verse 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I think this description here is, is Jesus uh, really contrasting himself to the current religious environment. In Jesus, in, in this situation, what was Jesus dealing with in terms of opposition? It was from whom? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the religious leaders, the people who were invested in what we call works righteousness. That is to say, they believed the kingdom was accessible. You had to be a Jew, so there was a racial issue, but you had to keep the law. And so we, we see in the Gospels, Jesus reproves them, I think it's actually in Matthew later, for, for binding heavy burdens on people. Heavy burdens that they don't even help to lift. The heavy burdens were all the minutiae of the law, the straining at the gnat, right? The strain, that was a literal thing, a straining at the gnat. So, so in order to be kosher, I want to be careful, if, if I don't let a gnat fall into your drink because you might consume a gnat and then break the dietary law. Okay, that kind of burden, the, ex, the, the attempt to earn God's favor through works, of whatever kind. And Jesus' invitation is to come because his yoke is easy, his yoke is light. It's not, a, it's not an invitation to enter into law. It's an invitation to enter into grace. It is not an invitation to enter into a bunch of rule-keeping. It's an invitation to enter into a relationship. Right? You've heard this a million times, right? It's not... It's not churchianity, it's Christ. It's not religion, it's a relationship. So Jesus is, is inviting people to come to him, and he doesn't lay out any prerequisite except they acknowledge that they need him. If you're burdened, heavy laden, come. If you think you've got your act together and don't need me, okay. Don't come. Matter of fact, you won't come. <laughs> Only those come to Jesus that, that recognize their need for Jesus. A Savior saves people who know they need to be saved. No one comes to Jesus if they think they're fine. You hear me? It's not how it works. You don't come to Jesus to be saved if you don't think you need saving. Right? Which is why in Scripture... The, the, the gospel is preached, but part of the gospel is the law. Not, not that the law saves, but the law is a tutor, we're told, to lead us to Jesus Christ. The law prepares us because the law shows us where we have failed to keep God's commandments. In other words, the law shows us that we need Jesus because we've broken the law. The law shows us we can't save ourselves. 
And, it, and, it's, and it's, when you think about it, it's really crazy that in, in segments of the Christian church, there's still such an emphasis on law. Now, it may not be the Jewish law, but it's law. It's church law. It's requiring sacraments. It's requiring uh, certain levels of obedience. It's requiring uh, various religious duties in order to be saved. Scripture tells us that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of works. Now, does that mean that if you're a Christian, you can live as you please? Well, of course not. That's not what the Bible teaches, because the Bible teaches that when you really become a Christian, something happens on the inside, right? It's called being born again. You don't just change your ideas about God. God changes you. You get changed on the inside, and that inward transformation works its way out into how you live. And so uh, the, the, the gospel message, the good news, is don't, is not come to Jesus for a new set of rules. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He does not burden us with all of, of, of religious things and, and rule-keeping things. That's not the gospel. The invitation is a gracious one. He lays out no requirement other than acknowledging that we need him. And if we, if we know we need him, he says, come. That's it. Thirdly, the invitation is personal. And what do I mean? I mean this. Jesus said, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The invitation to salvation is an invitation to come to know Jesus Christ. It's, it's to meet Jesus. As, as uh, I've said many times, you can't meet somebody who's dead. So the invitation in, in the scripture to come to Jesus is, assumes what? His resurrection, right? I mean, if Jesus is in the grave, you can't really know him. You can know about him. You can read about things he did. But if he's dead, you can't know him, right? You can know about George Washington, but you can't know him. And if you think you know him, you need prayer. <laughs> but you can know Jesus because he's not in the grave. He's alive. And so we can come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is at, at the heart of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that invites us to know God in and through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the good news. Remember, in, in the old covenant, which was glorious, Paul says, but the new covenant's more glorious. In, in that covenant, there was always the Holy of Holies, and that place uh, was only, the only person that could go into the Holy of Holies was the high priest one time a year. That was it. That's the place where God had his presence dwell amidst the people, in the Holy of Holies. But the people couldn't go in there. They could get close, but they couldn't go in. But when Jesus died, we know what happened to the veil, don't we? Because Matthew says the veil was torn in two. It was rent. Symbolizing the reality that now the way into the presence 
of God was open to all who would come by faith. It wasn't reserved anymore just for the high priest or just the priesthood. Well, in fact, all Christians are really priests, right? And so we are invited into that place. Jesus is inviting all to come into a relationship with him and with the Father through him. It is a personal relationship. Secondly, the revelation here of the heart of Jesus. Jesus says this in verse 29 about himself. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Some versions, I think the King James says, I'm meek and lowly or meek and humble. These words are often interchanged. In your Bible, it may say meek, may say lowly, may, may say humble, may say gentle. And even in the same translation, you, in your Bible, the, often they'll take the same Greek word but translate it different ways. So it'll be the same word in the original, but sometimes they translate it gentle, sometimes patient, sometimes meek. And so if you really want to uh, follow the rabbit trail, you've got to get a concordance out. The point is, is that Jesus here declares in the only place in Scripture what his heart is like. This is striking. This is the only place in Scripture. So we should really pay attention to this, don't you think? The only place in Scripture where he says, this is what my heart is like. And what does he highlight about his heart? He says, first, my heart is meek. My heart is meek. What is meekness? Well, as we all know, meekness is not weakness, right? Meekness is an attitude, first of all, of submission to God. Submission to God. It's a Godward virtue. And you notice here in context that before Jesus describes his heart, he prays a prayer, doesn't he? And in that prayer, he says, in verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. That is the spirit of meekness. God, it seems good in your sight. So be it, it is good in your sight. That is a heart of meekness toward God. Submission toward the Father. But in relation to to men, meekness means... um, is often used in Scripture in how we respond to people, particularly when they are treating us ill, which is interesting. How do we respond to those who are mistreating us? Um, we are called to respond in meekness. Look at First Timothy for a moment. We'll be back in Matthew. First Timothy two. <clears throat> Did I say First Timothy? Yeah. I meant second. Sorry. Excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, same word is used here. Paul is exhorting Timothy. Um, he says in verse 23 of, of 2 Timothy 2, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they will 
they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. We see this theme throughout Scripture that when we are mistreated, we are called to respond with a meek, patient, humble attitude toward those who are mistreating us, not to return reviling for reviling and hatred for hatred, and, and, but rather to, to return, to respond in a spirit of meekness. Jesus, we see this throughout his entire ministry, and we especially see it when he stood before Pilate, and, and um, he was mistreated, and he was silent. He was meek. He was quiet. And he endured all of the lies and the slander that were leveled against him. Jesus also says that he is lowly. The word there is really the word humble. A humble heart. Um, Philippians chapter 2 highlights this virtue of Jesus. If you want to turn there with me. In Philippians 2, we are exhorted to be like Jesus. And it's really this virtue of humility that is highlighted here, pointed out for our um, imitation. In Philippians 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord in one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then, then, well, what's the evidence it was in Christ Jesus? Well, he tells us right here. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross." And as Paul goes on to tell us, because of that, God highly rewarded Jesus, highly exalted him. So here Paul is, is exhorting us to be like Jesus. And he could have mentioned many things, but the thing he highlights here is humility. Um, Jesus had many, many wonderful virtues, did he not? And as we think of the heart of Jesus, we, we see his meekness, we see his humility, in some texts, you see his courage. I mean, he was a very, very brave person. You see his compassion. If you remember Matthew 11, which we looked at a while back, Jesus looked at the multitudes and it says that he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, right? Um, the, as Jesus' view of others was predicated on his heart. Now hear me on this, okay? What we see is a result of who we are. What we see is a result of who we are. The disciples often were, had an attitude, uh, 
I don't want to be real critical of them, because I probably would have been just as bad or worse. But very often they were indifferent to the people that were suffering. Okay? Jesus was not indifferent, right? Well, what was the difference? It was Jesus' heart is what was different. So we, we see because of who we are on the inside. This is why in Proverbs, in Proverbs it says what? It says to keep your heart, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. And then it mentions the feet, the eyes, the hands. Why? Because the heart governs the feet, the eyes, and the hand. In other words, it governs, governs our life. What we see is, a, is, is really conditioned by who we are on the inside. This, that's why Jesus can be, on, in, in, uh, I think it's in John, where it talks about Jesus feeding the multitude. Jesus has, it says Jesus has compassion on them, and the disciples are figuring a way to get rid of them. Why? Because they didn't have compassion. Okay? Jesus saw people, and he saw their need. But he saw their need because his compassionate heart caused him to see them in their need. Right? And this is so very important. Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but very important for us. Jesus um, had a heart of love. Of course, compassion is really an extension of love. Um, In John 13... It, it says here that this is in the upper room, uh, what, what's often called the, the Last Supper. In John 13, it says, in verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that's a little introduction to then the events that happened in John 13. And that is, what did Jesus do in John 13? Jesus got up from dinner, he took off his robe, he took a towel, he got a basin, he got down on his knees, Jesus, on his knees, and he washed the feet of the disciples. That humility, that meekness, was a reflection of his love, right? And that's what John wanted to point out to us. Jesus was loving his own by serving them. Uh, 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 It requires love, it requires compassion, it requires humility to do what Jesus did, and they're inseparable, really. A proud person does not walk in love. A proud person does not walk in compassion. These things are incompatible. So when Jesus says he's meek and lowly in heart, he's he's not giving us a full description, but as the more you contemplate uh, the heart of Jesus and the way things really are, these virtues are intertwined. They're inseparable. You don't have an arrogant person who's kind. It has to be a meek person. It has to be a humble person. You don't have an arrogant person that's compassionate. It must be a meek person and a lowly person. We could speak of many, many virtues of Jesus. But, but the one that he highlights is his meekness, his lowliness of heart. And I, I believe that it's out of these flow all the others. His compassion, his love, and even his courage. 
So why does Jesus describe his heart here? Because as I said earlier, the invitation, at the heart of the gospel invitation, is to come to know Jesus. Come to know Jesus. What's Jesus really like? That's at the heart of the invitation. Jesus is, is telling us what he's like so that it induces us to come to him. So that we're, we're lured, if you will. We're drawn to come to him. We don't feel put off. We don't feel afraid. Because he's meek. He's lowly. He's humble. So Jesus reveals his heart because that is the gospel invitation. The gospel invitation is to come to him. In Matthew, back in Matthew, this is what he says. He says, come to me. And then he describes his heart. doesn't say come to church, come to your pastor, come to a conference, come to a prayer meeting. Now, should we not go to the thing? No, those are all great things. But you can go to church and not come to Jesus. Right? We have churches full this morning all over the country with people. Some know Jesus and some don't. But they're both in church. You can go to a prayer meeting and not know Jesus. You can go to a men's conference or a women's conference and not know Jesus. Happens all the time. The gospel isn't come and be Christianized. It's come to Christ. Right? Come to know Jesus. Um... And so his description here is, is an attempt to in, uh, lure us, if you will, to entice us, to draw us in to him by, re, by revealing how good his heart is. So what is the application of this for us? Well, there could be many applications, but I just want to mention two. I think as Christians, we need to I'm talking to Christians. Maybe some of you are not Christians, and I'll share a word with you in a moment. But for those of us that are Christians, and if we've been Christians for any length of time, we have to move from, are you listening? We have to move from admiration to imitation. We need to move from admiration to imitation. A lot of people admire Jesus. I admire Jesus. I think he's awesome. I mean, when I read the Gospels, I'm like, holy cow, this guy's amazing. I mean, Jesus' courage, standing up to people, wow. This is a man's man, right? I mean, his courage, his authority, but his kindness, his gentleness. When he, I think when he healed the, the, the man born blind, remember that story? We, the guy gets thrown out of the synagogue. Then it says, it's one little line, Jesus went and found him. Man, what a heart. You get what I'm saying? Jesus went and found the guy. So uh, there's so much to admire about Jesus. Now, that's the earthly Jesus, right? When you read the gospel accounts, this is the earthly Jesus. This is the pre-resurrection Jesus, the pre-glorified Jesus, the pre-risen Jesus, the pre-ascended and exalted Jesus. And he's admirable. But now we know that Jesus is on the throne of God, exercising all dominion and authority. 
And, and we learned in Revelation, we, we get a little glimpse, because the veil's torn open, we get a little glimpse there of what's going on, and a glory, blessing, honor, right? Wealth, everything belongs unto the Lamb. And so we admire the Lamb in the sense that we praise Him, and we should praise Him. Amen? We should admire Him. But it doesn't end there. And that's the problem. It often ends there. You see, admiration should lead to imitation. It's easy to watch. Are you guys watching any of the hockey? Blues are in the playoffs. I mean, you see Tarasenko the other night? Got two goals. This guy's shot is amazing. I read this article that they, they took this poll of all these goalies in the NHL, and they said one of the, the, one of the few people that they want to face is actually Tarasenko because he shot so wicked. Wicked means good, by the way. Right? Amazing. It's amazing. I admire it. But I've never tried to imitate it. You get the difference? My, my old pastor, who is old, actually, because I'm old. He's really old. I call him my original pastor. Had a saying. He, it was this. It was that Christianity is not a spectator sport. And we're a spectator society, right? You go downtown to watch the blues, you don't get on the ice. You watch. Turn on TV, you watch. Go to a concert, you watch. We are a, a spectating society. And we admire, and we should admire, we admire excellence, right? It, it's truly admirable what a virtuoso pianist can do or, or uh, an opera singer or or an athlete, it's just amazing what they're going to do, and you just admire it. But I can admire Olympic athletes. I can admire uh, hockey players while I'm sitting there eating chips. <laughs> I read a great uh, chapter in a book uh, about... Uh, Discipline the Christian life. And, and it, it lists all these quotes. Maybe I'll bring them sometime for you. From all these great athletes, I mean, you know, the great ones, Beckham and the, the famous great ones. And they all said the same thing. And it was this. I wish people, you know what I'm saying? I wish people would appreciate all the hard work off the field. When we see somebody do something amazing on the field, it's a soccer goal or, or you know, it's, it's a hockey goal or we see a violinist or a pianist or, or whatever. We're like, holy cow. But we often don't think all the hours of practice and practice and practice that goes into that excellence, right? All the work done when not on the stage and when not on the field. That's why they were really great. Yeah, they had natural ability, sure. But there's a lot of people who are talented failures. Because success is talent plus work. Talent plus work. Right? We admire excellence. We admire talent. I'm not sure how much we admire work. Come on now, give it up. Right? 
I love to watch hockey when I'm eating chips. If there was a prerequisite, you have to work out with the team before you can watch the game, I would never watch hockey, okay? Because it ain't going to happen. So in our Christian life, we can fall into, uh, let's just call it a trap, of admiring only. Not that it's wrong to admire. Yes, we should admire Jesus. We should worship Jesus. We should meditate on how glorious he was on earth and meditate on how glorious he is now in heaven. Give him all of our praise. Amen? Amen. All of our gratitude. We should admire everything excellent and virtuous about Jesus. But it doesn't end there. Because we are supposed to go from admiration to imitation. You see, that's what Paul was telling the Philippians, right? He says, let this mind be where? In you. Let the mind of Jesus, which led him to deny reputation, to deny comfort, to deny the glories of heaven, to to be ridiculed, rejected, persecuted, crucified, that, that mind that led him to do that, let that mind be in you. See, I sit there and I marvel in admiration that Jesus was so humble, that Jesus was so meek, that Jesus endured all of the the taunts and the ridicule and and the suffering. I admire the the virtue of Jesus that he could endure all that, but I don't want to go through it. I don't want to imitate it. But admiration alone doesn't make you a Christian. It's admiration followed by imitation. When Jesus got down, well, we'll go back to John 13 real quick. When Jesus got down and he, and he washed their feet. I mean, we read this, we're like, yeah, that's cool. I'm telling you, if we just think about what happened here, it's astounding. The Lord of glory, the second person of the Trinity got down and acted like a common slave. That's what happened here. A common slave. And he, and he wiped their dirty, stinky feet on a towel that was on his body, which, of course, is symbolic of taking our sins upon him, right? On his flesh. The Lord of glory sets his robe aside, lays, lays the, the manifestation of his deity aside, take, takes a servant's towel, the image of a servant, like it says in Philippians 2, the form of a servant, puts the, takes a sin on himself. This is astounding. This, I mean, you talk about humility and meekness. But then he says this. He says in, in um, verse 12, it says, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again. So Jesus finished washing their feet, took the servant towel off, put his robe back on, sat down. Of course, symbolic of his resurrection, taking taking the robes of glory, sitting down again, being seated now at the right hand of the Father. He says, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. There's admiration. This is admiration. Lord, 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 teacher, rabbi, awesome sermon, Jesus. You, you nailed it, Jesus. You dropped the mic, Jesus. That's a new one I learned the other day. Yeah. Dropping the mic is good, by the way. 
That's admiration. Notice 14. If I then, your Lord and teacher, which you've just said I was, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. You see, admiration, Jesus says, now should go to imitation. Right? Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. To, to not serve, to not lay down one's life, Jesus is saying, is, is to imply that you're better than me. I was willing to do it, and I'm the master. You're my servant. The servant's not greater than the master. So if you think you shouldn't do it, you're implying you're greater than me. Right? So we need to go from admiration to imitation. Not that we don't admire or worship or praise, but that should issue in are imitating the life of Jesus. And as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus lived a life of concern for other people. Jesus didn't spend his life thinking about himself, okay? Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to lay down his life for other people. We are called to do the same thing. I understand you have a job and you have family and you have things you have to take care of. I get all that. But our vision of the purpose of our life must go way beyond work and home. Because if we're going to be like Jesus, we're called to lay our lives out for the sake of others. Others in the church, others outside the church. Others outside the church. We are to have a concern for the lost, for the dying. We are to imitate Jesus in this regard, who did have compassion on the multitudes. This Jesus who we admire, who said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why he came. Are you imitating him? Or just admiring him? Secondly and lastly, we need to go from union to communion. What do I mean? Because when I talk about imitating Jesus, if you really think about it, it's an impossible task. To be like Jesus is, is like, how, how in the world can I be like Jesus? I mean, Jesus was Jesus, you know what I mean? Well, if you're a Christian already, the Bible tells us that if you're born again, you have been united to Christ through the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you're, you're born of God's Spirit. You don't just receive life, which you do, but you receive a life and a quickening that unites you with the Son of God in the Spirit. And so you become a member of his body, you see. And it, this is what the, the old theologians called the mystical union, meaning spiritual union. And it's real. It's true. Being united to Jesus, that means that, in fact, you are united to all of the true church. Those who are born of God's Spirit. And Paul unfolds this in 1 Corinthians 12 when he talks about the members of the body and the gifting. Same Lord, same God, same Spirit, right? Because we're all baptized in that one Spirit, we're all united to Jesus Christ who is the head of the body. If you're truly born again, you are spiritually united to Jesus Christ. 
However, that union, which is a fact, mystical doesn't mean, woo, weird, like, you know, mythical. It means spiritual, and it's real. But that union has to now lead to communion. Right? It's possible to be a Christian who, if you're really a Christian, you are united to Jesus Christ, it's very possible to not be in communion with Jesus Christ. What do we call that? Being out of fellowship, right? Call back being backslidden. There's different words for it. It's possible to be united, but not truly in fellowship with the Lord. Not walking with the Lord. Not knowing Jesus in a personal way. Um, and I can assure you, well, let me remind you, that if you're not doing that, you're not receiving the gospel. Think about what I'm saying. If you're not having communion with the Lord on a regular basis, you're actually not receiving the gospel. Because what's the gospel? Come unto me. Not just come unto me and get your uh, ticket to heaven and then go live your life. Right? Come unto me and learn of me. Get to know me. Learn of me. Walk with me. Talk to me. Pray to me. Fellowship with me. Then you find that the yoke is easy and light. Christianity, apart from a, a relationship with Jesus Christ, can be just as burdensome and grievous as, as Phariseeism. Maybe even worse, because it has the promise of hope and grace, but in fact it doesn't have the reality. It has the form of godliness without the power. You see? That's not hope. That's not good news, the evangel. The good news is that we come to Jesus Christ, and through knowing him, listen, I'm going to end now. Through knowing him, we are empowered to imitate him. Amen. I know a lot of Christians, a lot over the years, thousands and thousands and thousands, but I only know a handful that I can see Jesus in on a regular basis. When you walk with Jesus, people smell it. And when you don't, they don't. It's a wonderful fragrance. It's a beautiful thing. And it's the only way that we can go from admiration to imitation. We don't have the power to, to live like Jesus, do we? No. Listen, my heart in its natural state doesn't care if anybody goes to hell. That's my heart in its natural state. In its natural state, my heart cares about one thing, me. And then I care about my family. But my, my natural heart isn't compassionate. It isn't concerned. It doesn't worry about the fact that my neighbors are going to hell. It doesn't, it doesn't really care in its natural state. So my heart has to change. And the only thing that's going to make my heart change is by spending time with Jesus. Because as I spend time with Christ, I am transformed into his image. I'm changed to where my heart begins to reflect his heart. And I begin to care about the things that he cares about. So then when I start looking at the lost, I can start feeling something. It's like Grinch, you know, we got the new heart. 
I, all of a sudden I see, oh, my neighbor, I start seeing a soul. I start seeing an eternal destiny. I start thinking of heaven and hell, not about, is he cutting the lawn good? You see, to see like Jesus, you have to be with Jesus. Jesus has a glorious heart. And we are called to not only admire it, but to imitate it. But to imitate it, we must go from our union with Christ to a real-life communion with Jesus. Those who really walk with Jesus talk about Jesus. They want to share Jesus because they just can't keep it in. Amen? Let's stand. Lord, we thank you that you've given us this glimpse of your heart. And I pray for all of us, myself included, that we would be more like you. Lord, remind us regularly that the world doesn't need our religion. Our world needs our Savior. The world needs you, Jesus. And I pray that we, your people, would not just practice the art of admiration, but rather the art of imitation. I pray that we would go from our union to genuine communion. I pray, Lord, that your people would fellowship with you. They would spend time in your word and in prayer, in private praise. As your spirit changes them, Lord, we ask that you'd open our eyes to see as you see, to feel as you feel, to care about the things and the people that you care about. Lord, we do ask that this mind would be in us, the mind that took you to the cross, the mind of self-denial, the, the mind of being unselfish, the mind of caring for others, even though it's costly. We ask, Lord, that that mind would be in us. And as we reach out to others, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them. That they might come to know you as we know you. And we ask this, Lord, for your glory alone. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.